Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has called for a comprehensive and lasting ceasefire in Gaza. What role is China playing in mediating Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has passed away at the age of 100. What legacy does it leave in China-U.S. relations? And the U.N. Climate Conference has kicked off in Dubai. What can we expect from this year's gathering? China has called for a comprehensive and lasting ceasefire in Gaza. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi presented China's position on the Palestine-Israel conflict while chairing a high-level meeting of the UN Security Council in New York. He urged the international community to revitalize the political prospects of a two-state solution with former determination and advance the Security Council to take responsible and meaningful actions. Fairness and justice on the Palestinian question lies in the two-state solution. This is irreplaceable. Only the true, the true and comprehensive implementation of the two-state solution can restore peace to the Middle East to realize peaceful coexistence between the two states of Palestine and Israel and achieve common development of the Arabs and Jews. China calls for ramping up international and regional diplomatic efforts, reshaping credible multilateral processes. The high-level meeting comes as China holds the rotating presidency of the UN Security Council for November. It also comes amid an extended humanitarian truce between Hamas and Israel, which entered into force last Friday. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Dr. Wang, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again. So we know that China has submitted a five-point proposal to the UN Security Council regarding uh, the Palestine-Israel issue. What do you make of the key elements in China's proposal, and how will that contribute to addressing the current situation in the region? I think the China's proposal, on the one hand, is very uh, comprehensive, uh, covering a lot of very important issues, uh, not only in this uh, not only about this round of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, but also covering uh, the, the very future for the uh, for the solutions of Israeli-Palestinian peace. And then on the other hand, we know that China's uh, proposal comes at a very very important moment that uh, would be very helpful to the future. Uh, maybe the, the come to the end of this round of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, we, we know that on the one hand, if we look at this proposal details, that uh, China updates uh, and continues its, uh, its efforts, uh, for example, to call for the ceasefire and the call for the help of the local civilians, especially uh, providing the humanitarian assistance to the Gaza uh, local uh, Palestinian civilians. And also China uh, proposed to uh, introduce uh, the, the greater uh, mediation efforts uh, into this, uh, into this, uh, the, the different conflicting parts, especially highlighting the very key role United Nations, uh, based on the United Nations chapter. So, uh, mean, uh, and uh, of course, no, the last but not the least, that China also stresses the very necessity uh, to restore the peace, uh, pr- uh, the peace negotiation based upon the two-state solution, and that is very important international uh, consensus. And and of course, on the other hand, China. Uh, I mean, China came uh, proposed this 
kind of the document at a very critical moment because we know that Israelis and Hamas, uh, they now are in a very important crucial time of the so-called temporary ceasefire. And inside Israeli uh, society, there were, were a lot of different voices, different opinions about how the future should be uh, should be formed and how the future policies should be implemented. And also, on the, on the other hand, inside the Hamas, there were also different ideas and different opinions. So that is why China's uh, documents and especially China's proposals uh, about China's stances over Israeli-Palestinian conflict is very, very important and not only show the world how China think about this, this one of the conflict, but also, I think, will, to some extent, uh, influence and even direct the, 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 the future uh, for the Israeli and the Palestinian peace process. Yes, um, these are important statements from China. Uh, but how would you assess China's role in mediating the conflict? I think China will continue to play a very uh, important role uh, in, 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 in this conflict and also in the future Israeli-Palestinian issue because uh, we know that after this round of the conflict erupted uh, at the very beginning of last month, China has already contributed our efforts. Uh, for example, China uh, on many occasions uh, called for the immediate ceasefire between different sides and China called for the international society uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to organize the very reliable humanitarian assistance channel uh, to the hands of the Palestinians uh, in the Gaza Strip. And also China calls for the rational and restrained actions from Israeli side, preventing uh, the, the further escalating uh, of wars, in, not only between Israel and Palestinian, but also prevent the escalating of the conflict into other parts of the region. Uh, so on many occasions, China stresses our very uh, concerns over the development of the Israel and Palestinian conflict. So, so, so that is why China's uh, distances, China's voices received a lot of the welcome, a lot of respect from the regional countries. And on the other hand, uh, as we stress again, uh, China-based Based upon the two-state solution, China, uh, uh, I mean, repeatedly uh, highlighted the very important, uh, importance of importance of the two-state solution and the importance uh, of reaching peace, lasting just the peace between Israel and the Palestinians through the diplomatic negotiation, diplomatic, uh, political, uh, political talks rather than the military and other violent matters. So that is why China will continue to play a very important role. And I think China's role would be continued to be expected and respected by the regional and especially the related parties in the Israel and Palestinian peace. Yes, but how do you think these voices can be put into practice? For instance, China has called for a comprehensive and lasting ceasefire. What specific efforts are needed to achieve this goal? I think I think if we're talking about very comprehensive and lasting ceasefire, uh, that a lot of things should be done because uh, right now we have to know there were several obstacles. Uh, Israelis, uh, they, uh, inside Israel, the, the, the opinion, the political opinion are still diversified and no consensus, no commonly sh- and widely uh, accepted and shared opinion uh, inside Israel about how and when the peace should be uh, restored. And inside the Hamas and other Palestinian factions, that uh, they still, uh, many of them still distrust the Israelis. That many of, maybe some of them uh, are organizing the further uh, military actions against the Israelis. So that is why uh, these are the very uh, obstacles from Israeli and Palestinian side. And also, we know that there were now a lot of the mediation 
a lot of uh, the, the channels from international society to hope to influence the actions of Israeli and Palestinians. But now these uh, mechanisms should be unified and should be unified into a very, very stronger uh, voice or the very, very stronger uh, behavior to, uh, to, to influence the, the, the actions of Israeli and Palestinians. So that is why I think China, because it's a very, very important uh, state, and on the other hand, China is the, 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 the member of the United, uh, United Nations Security Council, permanent member of the United Security Council. So, uh, so I think China will continue to do our best to, to restore peace as early as possible. And also China will do, uh, will do uh, a lot to, uh, to offer uh, humanitarian assistance, humanitarian help to the local Palestinians through our own uh, negotiation efforts as well as our own donation to the local people there. Yeah, and, and uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi has stressed the importance of a two-state solution, and actually this comes amid growing international calls uh, to pursue this, to pursue a two-state solution. But given the level of violence in the past several weeks, how realistic and viable is it to restart discussion of a two-state solution at this juncture? And do you think um, a two-state solution is still possible? A two-state solution, maybe there are a lot of difficulties, maybe there are a lot of obstacles, but a two-state solution should be continue to be perceived and understood the very um, uh, very fundamental principle uh, for the relations, not only the existing relations, but also for the future uh, constructive relations between Israel and the Palestinians. Because two-state solution is, on the one hand, is the only uh, commonly uh, accepted and the commonly recognized the principle for the constructing peace between Israel and the Palestinians. On the other, on the other hand, the two-state solution is the only uh, principle that could be accepted by both Israelis and the Palestinians uh, in their process for seeking peace and uh, and restoring negotiations. So that is why the two-state solution should be uh, con- continuously to be maintained, to be respected. Yes, there were a lot of obstacles, and maybe this sounds that not realistic right now because given the, the conflict and, and the war is still continue, and the possibilities of the escalating of crisis are still there, but the two-state solution should be continued to be maintained and to give more confidence to both Israel and the Palestinians and also give the confidence to the international audiences that the two-state solution should be continued to be maintained as the major fundamental principles. I think China will continue to do it with the international world. Okay, but what are the red lines for Israel and Palestine that might influence the willingness of each party to engage in discussion? I, I think there were the, maybe the red line is that on the, from Israeli side, they hope that their national uh, national identity, especially national ex- legal existence, should be respected. Because from Israeli perspective, that Hamas always rejects Israelis' right to, of survival, Israeli legal existence. So that is why, uh, on many occasions, Israeli repeatedly stress, stresses that okay, we are not the they are not the the the, the war maker, the Hamas. Is a war maker, but from the perspective of the Palestinians, that they believe their survival rights, they believe their territories are growingly, growingly, and increasingly occupied by the Israeli Jewish settlements. So that is why they believe that their their rights for survival, their rights for national states, is being threatened, especially uh, increasingly being threatened by uh, by the Israelis. 
So that is why uh, the two sides, the, uh, the, uh, the, the very red line for them is on the one hand, is really hope to get the recognition of their survival from the Palestinians, while the Palestinians hope to also get the recognition of Israel over their own uh, national statehood. So I think this will be the red line, very major red line for the future negotiation between the two, two sides, especially uh, between Israelis and the Palestinian different factions. Okay, so looking beyond uh, the immediate crisis, what role do you think the international community should play in post-war diplomacy, um, reconstruction, and also long-term stability in the Gaza Strip and the broader Middle East? I, I think the very the major, most impressive thing that we should do is from international society's perspective, that is to restore the peace, uh, to help to, to bring the kind of the truth in, uh, between Israel and, the, and the Hamas as soon as possible, because right now, uh, legally, the war is still there because the temporary ceasefire is not reliable, it's not stable, and, and any time that this kind of the temporary ceasefire will go back to the uh, total confrontations again. So that is why I think the ceasefire uh, for maybe a longer term should be uh, should, should be introduced as early as possible. And if we look at the the, the, the longer term stability in the Gaza Strip and maybe the more broader in Middle East that we are talking about, on the one hand, to, re- to reintroduce the confidence to help the local Israelis and the Palestinians to restore confidence uh, over each other, especially when we're talking about the peace. It means that the Israelis and the Palestinians should trust that the other side would obey the peace proposal, a uh, peace promise. So this will, I think this, will, this is why they need the confidence over each other. And also the, the very negotiation channel and, and, the, and the talk channel, communication channel should be restored and that are facilitated by the international society. And, and the, the last but not the, fine, but not the least, that uh, the international society should give uh, reliable uh, international assistance to the local policy in, in the Gaza Strip, because the Gaza Strip people, they are in a very dire situation. Uh, and that is why uh, the international assistance will be highly needed in the future. And international society should, should organize a very reliable mechanism to help the local people there. So that is why I think a lot of jobs should be done, a lot of work should be done, but the future is very promising if we uh, do more, if we make more efforts to the the peace process between Israel and the Palestinians. Okay, thank you, Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has died at his home in Connecticut at the age of 100. Chinese President Xi Jinping has sent a message of condolence to U.S. President Joe Biden. Henry Kissinger was a scholar, statesman, and diplomat who wielded power over U.S. foreign policy throughout the administrations of President Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. He visited China for more than 100 times and was hailed as an old friend to the Chinese people for his significant role in brokering the two countries' rapprochement over five decades ago. The Chinese Foreign Ministry said Kissinger's contribution to China-U.S. relations will be remembered by the Chinese people. For more on his legacy, we are now joined by Zhu Fun, Dean and Professor of International Studies at Nanjing University. Professor Zhu, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so what do you make of Henry Kissinger's legacy in shaping China-U.S. relations? You know, first of all, I really feel very, very sad about the uh, message of his passed away. In the past more than half century, there's no one in the United States who will 
just a match uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger's for his China engagement, for the frequency of his China visit, and his insightful, you know, the, uh, overlook of the U.S.-China relations. I think he's not just a, a very senior diplomat. He served as, we say, uh, the uh, Secretary of State. He also served as uh, National Security Advisor to uh, President Nixon. But most important contribution, I think he's also a very leading international theoretical professor. He's a real great thinker. So then I think, uh, yes, how can we imagine a, a, a person could just uh, have to combine such a so great talent of the different fields and finally become, you know, a leading figure, uh, some sort of a bench maker, marker in the, uh, such a, a multiple fields. So that's why he's a really a marvelous guy. He did a great contribution to our bilateral relations. Uh, speaking uh, briefly, he's a real promoter to our uh, relations overwhelming change. Since before and after the President Nixon's, you know, uh, historical surprise visit to Beijing. Because mm-hmm. after 1949, China-U.S. relations fell into the competition and even combative behaviors uh, of up to the, in 1972. But we know the ping-pong diplomacy. It's a small ball just attending some sort of a great ball to us. Then he did a, a secret visit to China and finally just, uh, you know, uh, rebuilt the communication channel with Chinese government. It's a very big precondition for President Nixon's historical visit in, in February of 1972. So after that, he's also a big promoter to the, uh, with the escalation of the relations between Washington and Beijing. Finally, I think the uh, bilateral relations just, uh, you know, uh, uh, got into the, some sort of new escalation and a new historical high by, you know, concluding the uh, formal diplomatic relations after the, on the, you know, January uh, 1st of 1979. I think uh, Dr. Kissinger is a bigger promoter after that. Then, even after the end of the Cold War, the American-China debate becomes very diverse. Mm-hmm. Dr. Kissinger's China views are always persistent and very, very enlightening. Okay. He always just advised the both. We couldn't fall into the new Cold War. Yes, yes, and and um, you mentioned this um, China U.S. rapprochement about five decades ago. What was the key motivations behind Richard Nixon's decision to pursue engagement with China back then? Of course, it's a, a Cold War background. Then we were seeing the U.S. at that time took the uh, former Soviet Union as the biggest, you know, the enemy. So at the end of the 90s, last century, China, Moscow, and the uh, Soviet Union relations also got just uh, apart. So we become some sort of a very hostile over each, to each other over the, uh, let's say, uh, boundary in you know, a conflict. So uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger was uh, very sensitive. He's a real realist 
you know, a, a masterpiece in international relations theory. So he very uh, firmly and explicitly advised Dr. Nick, uh, President Nixon, U.S. should pull China into the American side and then standing again together in a line against the Soviet Union. Of course, it's a real historical moment why the both countries just have a getting together once again. Yes, but as we know, the global landscape has, um, there has been a significant transformation in the global landscape today. So how do you think hearing Kissinger's diplomatic approaches or strategies still hold relevance today? Um, yeah, it's a complicated question. After uh, the demise of the Soviet Union, um, I think uh, on the one hand, Dr. Kissinger is getting a little bit older. On the other hand, after the uh, Cold War was over, the U.S. just uh, has, uh, got very strong, got very drunk onto the uh, unipolar moment. The U.S. believed its uh, liberal internationalism could not just empower the Washington, D.C. to be very stable in its uh, unique you know, uh, prominence. But most importantly, U.S. should promote and export its ideology globally. So then Kissinger is a realist thinker. He don't think the ideology should be some sort of a central piece of American foreign policy promotion and international security strategy, you know, uh, uh, pursuit. So from this point, to be honest, since the middle of the 90s, Dr. Kissinger's policy influence is truly just the easing down. But the problem is no one could doubt how powerful and strong he is over his great thinking and his great contribution to IR studies. So that's why from then on, then we will see the press, uh, Dr. Kissinger is really just become still very, very active in publishing his books. For example, 10 years ago, he published his masterpiece, it's a book named On China. No one could match him over his historical and theoretical sensitivities on how U.S. could, you know, fondly and rightfully just look at the China because he made all the Chinese top leaders since the new China founded. He talked he made and talked with President Mao, uh, Premier Zhou, and Deng Xiaoping, and Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and even now the current top Chinese leader, uh, Xi Jinping. So that's why his China engagement is really marvelous. And it also boosted his some sort of a very objective, insightful China thinking. Yeah, but do you think mainstream China watchers today in the U.S. are taking a different view on China-U.S. relations as compared to the generation of Henry Kissinger? For instance, some are saying that um, this engagement policy has undermined American interests. How do you look at this? Yes. So that's also another very uh, sad side of the history. Dr. Kissinger is a great China insider. But the problem is, as I mentioned, is truly against any prospects of the new Cold War between Washington and Beijing. They also very, very clearly 
and also very smartly won the Washington D.C. Don't just take China as some sort of a destined enemy. He always argued the essence of the Taiwan issue is the one-China policy. But the problem is, as I mentioned, his view becomes some sort of sideline. But the problem is, his view remains echoing both sides mm-hmm. and enlightening both sides. So we should keep him remember forever. Yes, thank you, Zhu Fengjin, and Professor of International Studies at Nanjing University. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The 28th annual United Nations Climate Meeting has kicked off in Dubai, the United Arab Emirates. World leaders, government representatives, and delegates from around the globe will be hammering out measures to limit the unwanted consequences of climate change. Bringing in fossil fuels and carbon emissions will top the agenda of the 13-day COP28 summit. For more, we are now joined on the line by Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center and exec- Executive Director of the Professional Association for China's Environment. So, um, Dr. Wu, what will be the key issues um, that are going to be discussed at this year's gathering? Well, as you, as you mentioned in your opening, uh, you know, sort of re- uh, comment there, uh, COP28 is another uh, round of UN climate negotiations. And of course, this year, as the 2028 one uh, hosted by UAE in Dubai, the focus, of course, is around loss and damage funds and money, the money issue. Uh, the second the focus will be around the fossil fuels, particularly because uh, the UAE is the seventh largest oil producer uh, country actually in the world. So it's been part of the sort of attention, uh, contention actually globally leading up to COP28. So now the global attention pretty much concentrated, focused on uh, UAE, the government, and trying to figure out whether it will be able or have the capability to keep the objectivity and really pull the global community together to deliver some substantial outcomes there. As I mentioned, finance, climate finance uh, will be probably the the, uh, headline grabbing uh, focus now. And compared to a conventional way of conducting COP20, uh, the COP climate conferences there, usually both of the deals will be properly put on the table, the draft put on the table in the second week for all the negotiators actually to sort of the you know, deep dive and trying to agree upon, if not everything actually, most of them. But somehow this round, uh, UAE decided to really already put a, a draft, a, a, a test, of the loss and the damage funds already actually on the table to the negotiators. So uh, even before, you know, this is today is the first day and the negotiators are already busy really working on this particular deal. So hopefully somehow we'll be able to make some progress. Yes, and let's look at the issue of climate finance, particularly regarding the compensation for developing countries facing climate impacts, um, because that, um, as you said, will be on top of the agenda. Uh, but how how challenging is it for nations to reach a consensus on this issue, and how crucial is it um, for building trust and cooperation among nations? Well, I think a, a sort of incremental progress is made already uh, since last year, COP twenty seventh in in Egypt. Uh, when the global community decided to embrace 
uh, the, the particular concept actually loss and the damage is found into the official uh, UN climate governance process. Uh, that's pretty much set the foundation for negotiation and uh, for countries coming together to negotiate on the details in terms of the modalities, uh, where to host it, what the mechanisms will be, how much money will be there, who should chip in money, you know, with all the kind of details there. So far, uh, you know, limited progress has been made in a way um, because we still do not know, uh, you know, uh, how big the fund will be, who will be, uh, you know, really putting money in it. There are still some contentional issues there, contentious issues there, for instance. Uh, you know, EU and uh, US and other developed countries have been insisting that China, uh, you know, Gulf nations, you know, or petrol states actually need to put more money uh, into this fund as well. So we'll see yeah, the outcome of the negotiations there. Uh, second issue that has attracted lots of attention is that where to put the fund at this moment temporarily. So the World Bank will be the place to host this fund for now. Uh, but as I said, the more details need, be, need to be negotiated and agreed upon, uh, you know, during the coming two weeks uh, negotiations there. Now, uh, the biggest uncertainty will be how much, how much the money uh, will be put into it. On one side, we all know why. Uh, you know, this this fund has been progressing because of the intensified climate change disasters and the vulnerable countries actually have been suffering tremendous sort of the hit in the last couple of years in particular. Uh, there's tremendous loss of damage already there. So, yes, of course, on top of the agenda, uh, we, the international community, particularly from developed regions, need to figure out how to really put more money on the table to support the vulnerable nations to on one side to fight climate change, in the meantime, as we're trying to figure out how to avoid uh, fossil fuel uh, sort of higher emissions there as well. Uh, if you look at the, you know, there's a, last year there's one UN report uh, concluded that generally it's about two trillion dollars every year by 2030. Uh, so yes, it's a great the pie is drawn already two billion dollars two trillion dollars every year. But then the question is who will put the money. Uh, you, know, you know, into this process. Uh, I think some of the developed countries, particularly some European countries, have decided, at least they said already, they're going to chip in money, make some major announcements actually in, in this week and the next. Uh, but uh, uh, definitely that's not going to be enough. And so that's going to be a major contentious sort of issue uh, for all the global community to watch closely uh, during the COP28. Yes. And how do you foresee the recent improvement in China-U.S. relations influencing global efforts to combat climate change, especially if we consider the positive momentum for the U.S.-China climate agreement? Well, climate resilience adaptation has been recognized as a really crucial strategy or response. Uh, that's also partly related to why there is a sense of urgency to set up this loss and damage fund there. So China has definitely put together its national strategy, and um, particularly in terms of you know pre-pre-pre-earning, uh, early warning, and uh, uh, prepared uh, to avoid and to, to mitigate uh, you know the disasters impact as much as possible. In the meantime, really put the emergency response mechanism systems actually embedded throughout the country, and so that part has been progressing. In in the meantime, China has been. Uh, reaching out to other developing countries and trying to figure out how to support them and to enhance their capability along the along the line as well. Now, uh, in the meantime, on the U.S.-China track, uh, we all been cheering up actually for 
the latest, latest bilateral climate statements, uh, you know, from the APAC uh, summit uh, in, 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 in California uh, recently. And that definitely has set a good foundation in terms of really uh, demonstrating, made the point actually to the international community that no matter how complicated the, the geopolitics has been, the two largest economies and also largest emitters have decided to continue to work with each other to support a global process. So that has become a very crucial part of piece of the puzzle to really get the international climate conference actually moving forward. So that, that's a sort of foundational piece of the puzzle. Uh, that's why we're still negotiating and the COP28 continues and probably there will be more uh, down the road, but very importantly, the two largest economies and the amateurs have to work more closely together to get their commitments actually deployed in reality. Yeah, thank you, Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center and Executive Director of the Professional Association for China's Environment. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. U.S. federal prosecutors have accused an Indian government official of orchestrating a plot to kill a Sikh activist in the New York City. The allegations are part of a new indictment unsealed on Wednesday. The indictment does not name the Indian official, suggesting he is a senior field officer whose responsibilities include intelligence. The alleged plot has reportedly targeted a dual U.S.-Canadian citizen who was general counsel for a U.S.-based group called Sikhs for Justice. The group is a part of a separatist movement pushing for the creation of an independent Sikh state in India. In September, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau linked the Indian government to the June murder of another Sikh leader in Vancouver. The U.S. indictment suggests a connection between the plot in New York City and the murder in Canada. For more, my colleague Ding Hon earlier spoke with Zoom Ahmed Kong, research fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. Uh, what do you make of the latest uh, U.S. indictment? Um, actually, before it was filed, India's Ministry of External Affairs said New Delhi had established a high-level inquiry committee to look into all the relevant aspects of this matter and would take necessary follow-up action depending on the committee's finding. What do you think we can judge from the statements here regarding the attitudes of the Indian government? Thank you, Ding Hung. It's, this topic is actually relevant for the last four to five months when we also saw the murder of Hardeep Singh Nijar in Canada, and we saw the diplomatic role between Canada and India that followed in the same month is when this individual named Gupta was directed by what he states, an Indian official, a senior Indian official, to murder Gurpatwan Singh Panoon. But these and other cases in this period between May, June, we have cases in, in the UK, we have in Lahore. Uh, firstly, they coincide with the historic visit of Prime Minister Modi to the U.S., which was also mentioned in the indictment as being an important occasion not to overshadow. But it's a fascinating coincidence to have of timing. The second important thing is that, uh, you know, the response, people who have read the indictment see that there is absolutely, uh, uh, based on uh, Gupta's uh, own words uh, and what's been documented, that there is a strong link between uh, this official and other officials and these planned murders. What I see from the U.S. government's response 
and from the Indian External Affairs Ministry's uh, response to that is that there seems to be an understanding that this is an important issue. This is this is a grave matter. However, we also see that uh, there is a history of the Khalistan movement, uh, which began in 1948, and how this movement has gained traction and also um, influence in countries, particularly of importance to the Modi government. Mm. So two most senior American intelligence officials have reportedly mm. traveled to India in recent months to raise concerns yeah. about this uh, this issue. In the meantime, senior Biden administration officials, including Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, have also raised concerns you know, with their respective Indian counterparts on this matter. So do you think we're going to see a diplomatic tussle between the U.S. and India, similar to the one we have already same between uh, New Delhi and Ottawa? Actually, that's, that is, I mean, the, the relative influence, first of all, of the Sikh community in Canada. I think most, most listeners might not know this, but Punjabi is the third most popular language in Canada after English and French. Mm. And, uh, and for Justin Trudeau, his current government does see the Sikh politicians uh, as an important part of the coalition. We don't have, firstly, that kind of relative influence of the Sikh community in the United States as we do in Canada. That's the first thing. And the second is that Hardeep Singh Nijar was executed, whereas Gurpatwan Singh Panun has not been. The findings obviously showcase that there was direct involvement of Indian officials. And at best, what we can see the Indian government eventually uh, you know, stating is that this was perhaps a rogue element within the government that were trying to orchestrate these assassinations. This could be a scapegoat for the Modi government. I do not personally, given the importance that India has for the United States and that the United States has for India, uh, see a diplomatic role of anywhere close to what we saw between Canada and New Delhi. However, I'll also additionally state that this does affect India's image uh, among the people, among the public, and also uh, officials in the U- United States. Okay. So, in a bigger picture sense, the Biden administration is currently seeking to boost the ties with India as a mm-hmm. critical component of a strategy to counter China in Asia, let's put it in this way. So, yeah. to what extent do you think uh, those issues surrounding the Sikh movement will complicate the Biden administration's attempt in this regard? That is a very um, complex issue. I think, you know, first of all, the the Biden administration, uh, not the first administration that sees India as a counterweight, we see that policy since the early 2000s when India also became part of the NSG supply, uh, the nuclear supplies group, and there was growing, you know, investment in India as, as a political partner or ally from the 2000s amidst the Afghan war. And the issue was obviously for the United States to see India as a counterweight to China. This is a, this is a priority policy that has been ongoing for decades. And we only see India becoming more significant as a partner to the United States. I don't see a shift in that policy. What I do instead see is that uh, this, if, let's say, the Indian government is directly involved, there is a lack of trust 
on the Indian government's part as well. I mean, if these individuals were actually accused of supplying armed organizers within India and are accused of terrorist activities by India, then why doesn't India trust Washington, Ottawa, or, you know, other capitals of relevance to hand these individuals to India for a proper trial? So there there are limitations to that relationship. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting to note, actually, during Modi's uh, June visit to the United States, uh, against the backdrop of some widespread uh, human rights accusation against uh, yeah. the Indian government, President U.S. President Joe Biden actually shrugged off those hmm. criticism or concerns, saying that India actually shares a so-called democratic uh, character Biden. with the United States, right? So. Yeah. Judging from this latest case, including accusation and allegation from the Canadian side and this yeah. latest U.S. indictment, um, yeah, do you think uh, India will have a reassessment or rethinking about its position in, in today's uh, geopolitical landscape? The accusations against especially the Modi uh, government have been ongoing again for years. Uh, Modi, as even the chief minister of Gujarat, was accused of one of the worst worst massacres uh, of the country. He is. Uh, this is a government that uh, that has been time and again for years been criticized for its policies that are discriminatory towards uh, not only the Muslim minority of India but also other minorities. So that criticism has always been ongoing. Does this, I mean, you know, it's also important to note that this Gupta person who was hired by the so-called Indian official happened to contact an undercover DEA agent, right? This is how the entire case has come out. So I think, you know, this entire episode will lead Indian operatives who are uh, overstepping their boundaries and who who must recognize the broader importance of their relationship, they they cannot they cannot operate in this rogue way. And will it will it force India or push India to change its uh, its policy, its rhetoric? I think only time will tell. And it is possible that uh, that there need to be more discussions between the U.S. and uh, the Indian government on, you know, how how they can reestablish a certain amount of trust that has been broken. But the image of India as a country that has not been uh, spared to its minorities when it comes to many incidents that go uh, unaccounted for and also many policies that have been introduced is something that's ongoing. It, in my opinion, only makes India seem less democratic than many uh, many people in the United States or Western democracies would like to see. But my personal opinion, I mean, so far, given the trajectory of this relationship, despite these existing complications, we have seen that trajectory uh, unaffected, uh, largely. That's Zun Ahmed Khan, research fellow with the Center for China and Globalization, speaking with my colleague Ding Hung. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Nanyang City Council has declared itself effectively bankrupt. It will stop all spending other than services and must provide by law. The council's chief finance officer said the authority was unable to produce a balanced budget for this year. The council cited increased demand for children's and adults' social care, rising homelessness, and the impacts of inflation as putting extra pressure on finance. 
For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Yao Shujie, Chengkeng Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Dr. Yao, thanks for joining us. Good evening. Um, so, what do you think are the key factors that have um, played a role in this uh, financial crisis that led Nottingham City Council to declare itself effectively bankrupt? Well, basically, uh, if an authority or uh, a financial identity announced it is bankrupt, it's fairly easy to understand on the financial book. Uh, the the income is significantly less than the expenditure. Uh, city council have some legitimacy uh, income sources, but particularly in in terms of the council tax, which charge on the house on the houses, uh, you know, cover in the in the council area, and also other uh, minor changes, and also uh, financial transfer from the central government. Now the expenditure uh, in 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 the United Kingdom. Uh, each city council is responsible for a certain item of uh, expenditure, basically education, uh, police, uh, health care, and, and also some sort of uh, unemployment benefits, uh, and, and so on. The, the list is quite long. Uh, you, you know, the, the, the clean of all the, the borough area, uh, you, you know, there are lots of work that have to be done. But the charges uh, on the individual household is actually very high. So, uh, you know, citizens are, uh, are in a burden with a huge financial uh, cost in terms of paying tax. And the council, you know, uh, certainly have to meet the demand. But the problem uh, there, I think, in my view, there are quite a few issues. The first issue is that, um, the efficiency of the council itself. I mean, the, the council have to be highly efficient in manage the budget. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is also uh, the, the the income sources are very steady, stable, but the expenditure could be high, particularly when the economy, the local economy is not doing very well. You have uh, more people being unemployed and more people become homeless and also children's care, disabled people. Uh, the British people enjoy quite a lot of uh, social welfare, but some of the social welfare have become so excessively high that the regional and the central government was fundamentally difficult to support. It is um, not only a regional issue, I think it is a national issue. Uh, Nottingham City Council is now bankrupt. Who knows what could be next? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but what what immediate effects does uh, the city council's bankruptcy have on on residents, on businesses, and on the overall function of the city? Well, it it it, it is bankrupt. Doesn't mean that the the city government have to be closed. So some of the basic um uh, you know services they have to meet, uh, but the quality and also the frequency of the services may have to be cut. The other things that um, the the central government have to look at the situation. Uh, they have to have some emergency rescue and try to come up with a long term plan of how to uh, you know rejuvenate the the city council. The problem is always uh, really uh, undesirable because the service level would have to be reduced and the quality of people have to be reduced.
Yes, and actually this follows uh, Birmingham City Council's declaration of bankruptcy, bankruptcy back in September. So as you said, Nottingham is not the first city and probably will not be the last. So how do you see um, the, this, um, the increasing use of Section 114 notices reflecting the broader issues in local government management and, and financial planning and, and what systemic changes are needed to, to address this uh, issue effectively? Yes, um, I, I, I think the, the first issue is have, you have to do the reverse action. The first action is have to look at the uh, city council uh, you know how it is run and what costs have to be cut. But as I mentioned, if you cut the cost, of course the the quality of services will be will be uh, jeopardized. The other thing is to uh, see whether there's some other some other uh, income sources or or unfortunately maybe the the council tax have to be increased to meet the meet the cost. Uh, there are a number of issues that have to be addressed. But overall, I think the UK has been suffering up to the Brexit uh, at the ground picture. Uh, international trade uh, has been, uh, you know, reduced. And also the international competitiveness of the UK has been reduced uh, in terms of industry, in terms of uh, external trade and so on. And the problem is that the economic growth is very sluggish. Uh, the the pound has been deteriorating, uh, the the stock market has been very stagnating. So uh, overall, the the country is facing more and more difficulty. So there are some fundamental reforms that have to be done, not only at the city level, but it's more at the national level, unfortunately. Yes. Uh, the, yeah. Yeah, since you mentioned the national level, uh, how might the financial challenges faced by these uh, local security councils influence uh, the ongoing debate um, around local government funding and the responsibilities at the national level? Yeah, the responsibility at the national level, the, the, the UK government as a whole is also very stressed by financial uh, resources. The central government also have been, uh, have been funding fairly difficult to make the the the, the, the two end meet and to balance the you know the counting book, and at this time I mean if more and more city council announce bankruptcy, I don't know whether the central government actually have the financial muscle to sustain the you know the level of services. In the end, it 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 have to be reformed, and also in the end maybe. Uh, people's living standards have to be continued to be reduced. Uh, we now see the, the very high inflation uh, in the UK market everywhere, and you will see that the, the concept of uh, reduced social services, reduced uh, social welfare have to be followed. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Yao Shujie, Chen Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for further discussion, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.